Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to the Jill Bennett Show. John Jang filling in for Jill today. Uh, don't worry, she is going to be back with you early next week. But before we begin, I of course want to say thank you to those who have served, who are currently serving, and to those who will choose to serve in the coming years. And although the 11th hour of the 11th month has already passed us, in truth, as you know, we must honor and pay respect to our veterans and service personnel each and every day. So with that said, we will continue with CKNW's Remembrance Day coverage on this show, including a story shared by retired Major Murray Edwards and his experiences in Korea. We'll also hear about how a staff member on this show uh, specifically has a personal connection to the Great Escape. And Richard Zussman, the one and only, is going to be joining us just after the one o'clock news for the latest on the debate regarding whether or not the province needs to do more when it comes to mandating vaccinations for teachers. But first, we indeed focus our attention on our veterans, because in truth, thanking them is not enough. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that we do enough for our veterans? The person who can help answer this is Dr. Marvin Westwood, Professor Emeritus, Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology and Special Education at UBC, and also the founder of the Veterans Transition Network. Dr. Westwood, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Okay. Thank you. And I want to say, uh, first of all, uh, again, happy Remembrance Day. I'm sure uh, you were just at a ceremony, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, Dr. Westwood, uh, just share your your thoughts from that uh, ceremony that I believe you were just at. Yeah, uh, it was a very important day today because uh, represented kind of present in the the program today were Canadian veterans who had served in Afghanistan. They attended the uh, service. They were part of the speaking party and they also are now uh, some of them are now enrolled in the university of british columbia following their service and wanting to go on and build careers otherwise but uh, i want to say that this particular group of veterans that served in afghanistan when they came back they had as you know uh, kind of what we call war-related trauma injuries and it was very hard for them to adjust And so we developed a program called the Veterans Transition Program that helped in their transition of doing the trauma repair, getting their lives straightened out. And uh, it has been quite successful. It's now traveled across Canada. Over, I think, 1,700 Canadian veterans have participated in this program. So we're so pleased to see them moving through into a successful transition and back in Canadian society. I love hearing those numbers. And indeed, when people think of the word veteran, the image of an elder person might come to mind, but that's not necessarily the case. In fact, we sometimes forget that active service personnel are often in their 20s, early 30s. And when they're finished with the force, they have the rest of their lives to sort of put together or maybe figure out. So tell us more about these programs and uh, what kind of opportunities exist for veterans afterwards. You've actually said something very important. Uh, that is, when they serve overseas, and not just Afghanistan, there are other countries as well, and they're young and they return, they come back with a great deal of, I'd say, applied knowledge and information that they've learned and acquired living in a global community doing uh, what they do. So they, they are uh, very knowledgeable about things like uh, projects related to culture, to water projects, to civilian governments and whatever and whatever. Uh, Now, when we see them here coming to UBC, we see them as having a knowledge base that a lot of Canadians don't have. 
So it's a resource that we need, and we also want to say to them, when they return, yeah, you have other careers in, in conventional areas, and you don't have to just think about when you come back to Canada, well, maybe you want to be a fireman or you want to be a policeman or first responder. Why? Because they have other things to do in life than doing the protection role that has taken a lot of, uh, from them. And they have a lot to give us, so we're very pleased to welcome them here. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of applicable skills uh, outside of just military service. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, Dr. Westwood, how are programs like this funded? And uh, is there a greater conversation that we need to have regarding perhaps the need for more funding? Well, there's always a need for more funding because it's an investment in the the humanity of this country. And... uh, What we have now is the Veteran Affairs Canada gives some support to the Veterans Transition Program. There's a lot of private donations, and uh, that has helped uh, this program be dispensed across the the full country. But uh, we always are looking for other funding because we're now scholarships, for instance, for Mm -hmm. Canadian veterans coming back to UBC. We really are encouraging whoever wants to contribute to the scholarships are them, and uh, that helps them complete a four-year program, get on with what they're doing. So that's right now, that's an initiative that we're, we're really putting out to the public of Canada. Well, I understand, too, the Canadian Armed Forces, some of their advertising and recruitment campaigns often target uh, people from high school and offer them the chance to earn money, uh, get an education while they're at it. So does this maybe also play a role in what you're talking about? Absolutely. And uh, what that, that's, that's what we want, and I'm glad you brought it up. There's a lot of people uh, who are just young people wanting to say, well, I want to eventually go into the have a military career, but I want to get school, post-secondary education, so I'll study, uh, both study and get a degree, uh, get a diploma, at the same time be a reservist in the military. So they combine the two, and we are looking forward to increasing the numbers that come to UBC doing just that. Right. And uh, Dr. Westwood, also curious here, uh, in terms of the Canadian Armed Forces personnel who are looking for support in other means, maybe they come back with a little bit of trauma, uh, whether it's PTSD, and we know that is often a very common case. What kind of programs are available for those that need this kind of help? Okay. So as part of the Veterans Transition Network, there is a program, a group-based program, that anybody coming back that served is eligible to take that program. And what the program does there, it's a 10-day program, 100 hours. Uh, it's offered in the retreat site. Uh, because they have worked together and served together, they assist one another in recovering some of the trauma-related injuries that they've had with a professional team of counselors and psychologists, and some of them have military trained themselves. And so that's what's available, and it's highly effective. The research shows that the majority of the people going through the program, uh, depression reduces, their anxiety goes down. And the big thing is the risk of suicidality if they have a severe trauma injury is reduced very significantly. And we're very proud to say that we haven't lost anybody due to that in those very large numbers. So that, that's what they're entitled to. That is excellent to hear. I mean, obviously, knowing what we now know as a society, more about mental health and mental health awareness, uh, I think it's really great to have programs like that. I'm curious then, Doctor, have you spoken with somebody perhaps who graduated from such a program and heard the testimony of what it was like for them and how it benefited them? Yeah, what they said, uh, we have actually interviewed quite a few of them. 
And they say the advantage of our particular program, that's the Veterans Transition Program, is that they do the recovery of their strengths and confidence in the team uh, of other veterans present. So it's the, as they say, I, I felt support, I felt understood because I was with people who have been there. And that's why it was very successful. It's soldiers helping soldiers. And uh, that's the main key because they feel totally understood and totally supported. Uh, Dr. Westwood, before we let you go, for those that might be listening and are thinking to themselves, this sounds like something I need to get involved with or something that I need to check out for myself. Uh, How can people find more information and uh, maybe seek that assistance? They can do it in two ways. They can go online and look up Veterans Transition Program Canada, Veterans Transition Program. And if they're particularly interested in uh, what we're doing about bringing vets back to university, they can contact the, it's called the IVET Centre, the IVET Centre at UBC. They just go online and enter IVET, capital letters, at UBC. And that's the Institute for Veteran Education and Transition. And those services, psychological services, are also one of the priorities for them to receive all they're here as well. So two sources, UBC and the Veterans Transition Program, and that's located headquarters in Vancouver. Glad to hear it again. That's IVET, I-V-E-T, UBC. Quick Google search should come up with everything that you need. Dr. Marvin Westwood, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Well, I appreciate being asked. All right. Welcome back to the Joel Bennett Show. John Jang filling in for Jill. She's going to be back early next week. Now, this is an iconic song. It's a theme song to an iconic film. In fact, if I would be so bold as to say, if you haven't seen the 1963 classic called The Great Escape, you are doing yourself, as a movie fan, I'm sure, a general personal disservice because it's not just a classic, it's really one of the greater, uh, greatest movies ever made. Some might say some of the stunts in that movie, some of the greatest that have ever been done in front of the film. So, uh, sorry, in front of the screen. Uh, with that in mind, let me tell you this. The Great Escape isn't just a, a standalone excellent movie, but I'm very uh, humbled and privileged to say that a staff member on this show has a very personal connection to this movie, to this story, for reasons we'll get into now. Let us introduce the technical producer of this program and Mike Smith's show. It is the one and only Tim French. So, Tim, first of all, uh, this is not just a great movie. Uh, You do such great work behind the scenes as well. Uh, What is the connection that you have to The Great Escape? Well, John, ask any movie buff about the film The Great Escape, and they'll go on about the heart-stopping, edge-of-your-seat tension or Steve McQueen's iconic motorcycle sequences. Mm -hmm. But my love of the film extends to a very, very deeply personal level. My great-uncle, Robert Fairclough, joined the British Royal Air Force the day that war was declared on September 3rd, 1939. Trained as an observer, his duties included plotting bombing routes, taking photographs of the target, etc., He participated in 29 successful bombing missions, flying in both Whitley and Halifax bombers. For his achievements, he was even awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. But the celebrations didn't last long, because on the night of April 12, 1942, his plane was shot down during a raid over Essen, Germany. He was the only one of his crew of seven to survive. His parachute somehow went unseen by the German anti-aircraft guns, allowing him to land relatively uninjured in amongst some trees. Uh, My great-uncle Bob was able to evade capture for nine days, making it as far as Holland, before having to give up due to pure exhaustion. Hmm. 
My great-uncle was captured by the Germans and taken to POW Camp Stalag Luft III, where he spent a majority of his time studying for his degree in agriculture. Then came the Great Escape, a daring operation to break out 250 prisoners, making a fool out of those wretched Nazis. <laughs> the plan was to dig three large tunnels, codenamed Tom, Dick, and Harry, so that if the Germans discovered one, they could easily move to the others. My great-uncle Bob's role was a small one, sewing buttons onto the makeshift civilian clothes the escapees would wear once out mm-hmm. and free. Sadly, the operation did not go as planned. On the night of the escape, only 76 prisoners got out before the Germans discovered what was going on. My great-uncle would have only gotten to the mouth of the tunnel when this happened. Of those 76 that got out, 50 were recaptured and shot. And the other uh, 26 managed to escape freely to various locations. Right. My great-uncle remained in the camp till the end of the war. Afterwards, um, he was released with all the other prisoners remaining in the camp. And he uh, was reunited with his uh, beautiful wife, my great-aunt, Nancy Fairclough, who is still actually alive to this day. And this year, she will be celebrating her 100th birthday. Amazing. Um, she herself has told me these stories. She has, uh, gifted me with photos of my great uncle's time in the prisoner of war camp. Um, my great uncle was deeply affected by this and I only ever met him as a, uh, as an infant. So I don't actually remember getting to speak to him. Right. Um, but I can tell you that for the rest of his life, as far as I'm aware, he exclusively wore long sleeved shirts. And sweaters because the numbers tattooed on his arm were too painful a memory of his time at the prison of war camp having to eat bread that was mixed with sawdust because they didn't want to waste flour on the prisoners mm. and many other horrors like that. Wow. I mean, I'm curious, when you watched this movie for the first time, did you know that your family had a connection to it or did you maybe realize that fact afterwards? If memory serves me correctly, I believe that hearing my great aunt tell the stories Mm -hmm. first led me to watching the movie. Um, But it took me a while to put two and two together that this was the same story because to me, watching a movie as brilliant as The Great Escape, really, it didn't seem like something so real or something that could have been a true story. It just seemed like something so imaginative and so Hollywood. But then you hear that it's a real story. Now, there were no Americans in the prisoner of war camp at the time, so that has been added so Steve McQueen could have his moments. Um, But nevertheless, there really was a prisoner of war camp called Stalag Luft III. There really was a plan, a daring operation to get out 250 prisoners when before a large escape was considered six or seven people. Mm -hmm. So this was a massive undertaking um, by the by the British officers. And yeah, so I just I, I look at the movie now more appreciative and more. Uh, just in awe of their efforts more than ever. Yeah, I mean, nothing but respect for the individuals who attempted this because, of course, they knew what would have happened if they did get caught and it ended up happening that 50 of them uh, had to pay with their lives. But you fight and fight until the end. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is testament to that. They made uh, an oath uh, amongst the prisoners that their one job... If they were captured as prisoners, their one responsibility would be to annoy harass and make the lives of the German uh, guards as difficult as possible. Mm -hmm. And one way of doing this was making as many escape attempts as you possibly could. (laughs) 
Um, my great uncle was very responsible and sort of took a more academic route. But when time came for him to uh, make the attempt at escape, he absolutely jumped at the opportunity. Wow. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing. I don't hear it very often that somebody has such a personal family connection to something that is not fictional. The Great Escape, though, as Tim said it, when you look at it, you think, this can't be real. It really, really was. And so I appreciate you being able to share the story with us today uh, in honor of your great uncle, who uh, sounds like he was just a, an incredible human being. So thank you, Tim. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. And again, it's just an example of how we observe, remember, Day today because it's it it comes in so many different shapes and forms and certainly I'm sure you listening you might also have a family connection to something somewhere along the lines whether it was uh, World War II the Great War the Korean War Vietnam I mean the list goes on and on and I would say that there's none of us out there that don't have a tie-in to the military in some way shape or form. Perhaps you were the benefactor in, in the sense that, you know, as a Korean Canadian myself, I can say that I live in Canada today because of the sacrifices made by Canadian soldiers in the Korean War. To Tim's point, I mean, you know, the things that his uncle had to go through and how many lives do you think his uncle would have touched going on the, what was it, 26 successful uh, bombing missions? I mean, yeah, 29. No, sorry, pardon me, 29. So just incredible stuff. Uh, thank you to Tim. That, again, is our technical producer for The Jill Bennett Show, also uh, The Mike Smith Show. Does an incredible job, as always, usually behind the scenes. But today, uh, we felt like we just had to share that story with you. All right, welcome back to The Jill Bennett Show. John Jang here with you, filling in for Jill. Uh, she's going to be back with you Tuesday afternoon, right after the 12 o'clock news early next week. Uh, she's just enjoying some very well-earned time off. Uh, in the meantime, always appreciate you joining us, especially as you are hopefully uh, taking in your well-earned day off for yourself. It is a holiday for most people, but of course, never in radio. Uh, the show must go on, as they say. Our uh, Remembrance Day uh, ceremonies and celebrations will continue on the station. I know coming up later today, uh, Jazz Joe Hall Show, they have uh, more plans to cover uh, a very disturbing incident that happened in Kelowna at a Remembrance Day celebration that was taking place earlier this morning. Um, I don't want to reveal too, too much because they're going to provide the full story and context of why this is making headline news right now, but uh, certainly more to come on this show as well. Uh, we're going to hear about uh, more stories and examples of Canadian bravery overseas. In the meantime, we are now joined by Richard Zussman, global news journalist based in Victoria. Richard, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Yeah, John, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Now, the debate continues on whether or not the B.C. provincial government needs to do more when it comes to mandating vaccinations for teachers right here in this province. And a few days ago, Richard, you might have seen it for yourself, I'm sure, uh, the Globe and Mail even covered and detailed how B.C. parents are frustrated with a lack of vaccine mandate for teachers. What's the latest on this situation? Because it seems like frustrations is boiling over at this point. Yeah, so I'm not sure... I would describe it as frustrations boiling over. How I would describe it is there is a real uh, clarity around two different camps here, and they seem to be regional in how they are emerging. So we continue to see districts put uh, in place votes where they say they should not have a mandate. So that has included now Burnaby, as of this week, it also includes New Westminster, it includes Surrey, it includes Vancouver. There are two different arguments here. 
one of the arguments being made is that these are communities where there are higher rates of community immunization, higher rates of vaccination within the school system. There is also this concern that if uh, there was a mandate in place and uh, those in the school system, so from teachers to administrators to education assistants to cleaners, um, if they were then put on leave, it would massively disrupt the school system, far more so uh, than allowing the system to continue as it is going. Then there are the issues that are emerging in areas like Salmon Arm and Kelowna, where we have now seen schools closed. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to the uh, teacher's rep in uh, West Kelowna or in the Kelowna School District, uh, where they were saying that, you know, there was a lot of pressure on one of the schools there. There were outbreaks, and now the school is closed. But that if you put in a mandate, it should not be up to the school boards. It should be a province-wide approach. That's something we've heard from the BCTF. It's something we've heard from the BC Liberals. So there is a sense of frustration in that regard, mm-hmm. that we're not having clarity around a province-wide mandate. Uh, but, you know, we continue to see these areas with somewhat lower rates of immunization having problems uh, in the school system. Fair. And, and I think it's a little bit different con- given the context that when the mandate came for healthcare workers, that made a lot of sense because they are dealing with patients who might have uh, more high risk with their conditions. They work in hospitals. It just yeah. made more sense to make that a full-on mandate. Whereas with teachers, uh, for the bulk of the pandemic, we know that children were not being, uh, at least showing the, the worst of the symptoms. Maybe that's changing a little bit. Who's from? It's not for me to say. But I'm curious, Richard, because you mentioned the interior. My understanding now is that several schools are being forced to go back to online learning. Uh, do you see the potential for this growing at the very least? Maybe offering that online option, not just in the interior, but elsewhere in BC? No, and I, I think that conversation is over. And uh, I know that parents have been advocating for this to continue, but it's not something that's going to happen. It is an additional strain on teachers and on the system in order to operate uh, in a hybrid model or even a virtual model. So I don't expect that to happen. You mentioned uh, the science around this, right? We continue to see data produced every single week showing us transmission among children uh, based on age. Uh, the province now breaks it up for you know five to eight year olds, nine to eleven year olds, twelve to seventeen year olds. The trend lines continue to indicate that those kids aren't getting as sick now as they were a month ago. They aren't going to hospital. They aren't going to ICU. All of that is good. But to the point you are making, John, like if uh, this is what we believe we should do to keep us safe, mm-hmm. then the mandate should be province-wide. Making a comparison between school staff and hospital staff is hard to make, as you described. But it is easier to make a comparison between school staff and, say, somebody who works for the public service. Right. You know, all British Columbia public servants are now required to be vaccinated. If we believe as a society, as a province, that these mandates make us safer, encourage immunization, encourage the highest level of protection, then those are the conversations we should be having. You know, I don't believe that anyone in the system believes, and I know Dr. Bonnie Henry has made this clear, that she doesn't believe that there is a huge risk of spread of the virus in the school system that could be stopped by a mandate 
but it would also, if there was a mandate, send a clearer message that we believe these sort of mandates are a path towards higher rates of immunization. Uh, very good points there for sure. And I, I'm wondering too, because you know, when we think about what the mandate means and what it does as well, with the new variants that uh, scientists are now beginning to track within Western Canada, obviously we don't know what that's going to mean in the greater context of this whole pandemic, but perhaps a mandate, again, offers that level of protection just in case things go awry. Yeah, and I think that's something to watch very closely. I asked about that earlier this week in the briefing, and we didn't get a whole lot of new information, but it's clearly something to watch, these variants upon the variants. There are three different strains of evolutions of the Delta variant that are uh, connected more directly to Western Canada. Uh, We are seeing this as potentially a more transmissible strain of the Delta variant, but not one yet that the province believes will impact any of the health measures Part of the reality here as well, though, is that, you know, in the school setting, we are anxiously awaiting children being eligible for vaccine. That could come as soon as later this month or early next month. We don't know what the uptake of that is going to be. That is going to be the next step in better understanding where we're seeing spread. We also know, and like we've seen in Salmon Arm and Cologne and other areas where we've had this pressure on the school system and forcing them to move virtual, The spread in community reflects the spread in schools. And we know that the best way to address community spread is immunization, along with layers of protection. So all of those factors are at play in terms of how policy decisions are being made at a provincial level. I'll borrow a line from Jazz Johal. You know, you got to believe the science. I think the science shows and we get the data. And I think it's very relevant to bring that up into this conversation. Uh, Final thought, though, Richard, if a mandate does come into effect, do we see this stopping at just teachers or will all school staff, including drivers, janitors, clinicians, are they also included? Yeah, so any mandate being considered is a school-wide mandate for staff. So it is a gist for teachers. We talk a lot about teachers. They are the most visible part of our school system. Mm -hmm. But these conversations that are being had, school boards, all 61 of them, ultimately will make those decisions. They are first taking the steps towards understanding how many in those school settings are immunized. But yes, this would include anyone who goes inside of a school or interacts with students. So bus drivers would fall into that as well. I don't believe that these are going to happen in a large measure. We may see some of these communities where we have higher rates of spread go with the mandate, but there are 17 hurdles that must be cleared before a board ultimately puts in that mandate. That's a lot of things to clear. And there also seems to be this great concern over, you know, as you and I talked about, if the mandate comes in, Mm. crippling the school system by putting a number of those working in the system on leave because they aren't immunized. Uh, Absolutely. Very well said. And for transparency and context, Richard, you're a parent, I'm not. So uh, for me, it's easy for me to be like, oh, bring in the hybrid model, bring in the online learning. But it's a completely different circumstance when you actually have children and you're also trying to you know, maintain your professional career. These are very difficult things. You can't just leave them at home, uh, again, depending on their age. Yeah, I do these things in the car so my kids don't bother me in the house. (laughs) It's just one little step that we're all working through. But yes, every family is weighing these options differently, you know, and, and the province and the boards are grappling with this because, you know, some parents have the capacity to do at home learning, others don't. We know that BC has been applauded for its ability to keep the school system open. 
and has been able to largely uh, keep transmission down in school settings uh, through, you know, measures that are in place, as well as the fact that this virus uh, does not transmit uh, as much through children as it does through other uh, parts of the population, as we've seen throughout this pandemic. Uh, Richard, really appreciate you doing this on a holiday of all day. So thank you so much for this, sir. Yeah, my pleasure, Dal. Thanks for having me.